This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Dan Schwartz. I've been at UC for about 25 years now. I was actually born at this hospital. And, uh, and uh, my father was a retinal specialist here. He actually started the retina service at this hospital in the, in the I guess, late 40s, early 50s. And... Um, and so uh, a lot of what we see as retinal specialists is actually related to diabetes. Diabetes affects the eye, as everybody knows. And um, I thought I would go over, just explain what the changes are that people see, that we see as, as ophthalmologists uh, in the retina, because that's the main tissue affected by diabetes, um, and explain what those changes are and how we treat them, and show how the field's really changing. Um, and it's changed really in like the last eight or ten years. It's changed quite dramatically about how we manage this, this condition. It's based on technological advances. One technological advance is an imaging device that allows us to see the disease better. Uh, and another is, is, a, is a therapeutic. We, use, we now use drugs. We actually inject drugs in the eye to treat the complications of diabetes. It sounds kind of gruesome, and I can explain to you about what, you know, how, how we do that. And then um, I'm going to talk about something that we've developed. I, I collaborate and you know, work a lot with professors at, uh, at Caltech you know, down in Pasadena. And we've developed a new imaging technology we think is going to further uh, improve and have a great impact on the public health aspects of diabetes. Because you'll be surprised that a lot of patients with diabetes um, not only aren't great at controlling their disease, but also um, don't see their eye doctor. You know, in spite of seeing their regular doctor, their you know, primary care doctor, and, and, they're, and going to pharmacies and getting things like that for, you know, to treat their disease, they're on top of that. But almost half of the patients that have diabetes, although they're supposed to see their eye doctor pretty close to annually, if not more frequently, don't ever make it there. So we've developed some technology we think will, will hopefully obviate that problem. So uh, let me just describe uh, initially what some of the changes are in diabetes. We won't go over this. A lot of slides to show you here. And I, I'm a, I always got to do disclosures now so you know I'm not contaminating what I'm telling you because I want to make money. So, so, we, so I, I am a co-inventor on this OCT and geography thing that I'm going to be talking to you about. So you've probably heard about the retina. I'm a retinal specialist, right? This is, a little, this is the tissue that I study. So you see this, this, if you look here about this, we're looking now at the eye in cross-section. They've cut open the eye. Right? And what's, what's this up here? That's a cornea. Ooh, you guys are pretty good. So that's a cornea. I actually have corneal transplants in both of my eyes. I had eye surgery and I was in med school and an intern. They transplanted my cornea. And, uh, and this is the iris, the colored part of your eye. This is the what here? That's the lens. So that's the part of the eye that gets a cataract. And indeed, people with diabetes have a higher rate of cataract formation. Okay? And you can see here the inner two-thirds of the eye is lined by what? The retina. Right? And you probably have heard about this disease, macular degeneration. I think one of my colleagues has already spoken, or will speak to you about it. And you can see how small the macula is here. It's this little dent. Let me see if I can find it. Right there. That's the macula compared to the whole rest of the retina. So that little tiny part of the retina, you'll see whenever we show pictures of the eye, we always show a picture of the macula. But it's really a very small portion of the whole, 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 whole retina. But it's that part of the retina that subserves your precision vision, the part used for reading, recognizing people, and driving. Okay? But if you look at the retina in totality here, it's a very small part. Now, diabetes uh, affects the blood vessels, the small blood vessels in particular, in the, in the retina. And uh, when I was a, a resident in ophthalmology, I, one of my professors told me, and I think this is still a good way to think about it, because uh, he told me in the context of explaining the disease to patients, but it's actually the way I think about it now. There are three major changes that occur in the blood vessels in diabetes. They are abnormal leakage, 
closure. And when you close off enough blood vessels, the eye responds by growing new abnormal but very fragile blood vessels. So you get leaky blood vessels. And if you get leaky blood vessels in the macula, what's that going to cause? Macular edema. Very good. You guys already know this stuff. So, so what happens is the retina will swell. It gets edematous, okay? And that's actually the leading cause of visual loss in diabetes is macular edema, okay? Let me just say, you know, I'm going to go over all the, uh, the horrible things that can happen to the eye in diabetes, but I'm going to end on a very positive note because the positive note, I mean, all that we're going to talk about therapy for all this stuff, which is inherently positive, but the positive note I'm going to end up on is that is that people used to think about this sort of as a having diabetes, eventually the disease catches up with you and you lose your vision or you go blind. But that's absolutely not true, number one. And number two is even if you were to open up an ophthalmology textbook today and read about what happens when you have diabetes for 10 or 15 or 25 years, it would say that it's a virtual certainty that you're going to have diabetic, significant diabetic eye disease which threatens your vision or causes visual loss. Also not true. And the people that wrote that stuff have recanted. They, they have a different perception on it. And it's all based on the fact that now with tight control, with good control of the blood sugar, good control of the blood pressure, that people with diabetes can have the disease for 30, 40, 50 years and develop virtually no changes in the eye at all. Okay, so it's a much, so even though I'm going to show you all the, all the horrors the disease can cause and on, on the bright side how we can treat them, I think for most people, certainly here in San Francisco who are, getting care from you know, good diabetes specialists and endocrinologists and good pri- primary care people who are up to date on all this stuff, the prognosis of this disease in the eye is really outstanding. Okay, so that's a good thing to keep in mind as we show you all these pictures. All right? All right. So, um, so let's look through now. Now, this is the, picture, the typical picture that we show people. We show a picture of the retina at a conference or a lecture, right? And here's the optic nerve right here. Here's the arteries and the veins. These are big blood vessels. Diabetes actually affects usually the, the smaller blood vessels, the capillaries that are in between the arteries and the veins. And you can't see those capillaries just by looking at a color photograph. We have to inject a dye in, the, in, in, an, in your arm vein, a fluorescing dye, let it go through the eyes and do what's called angiography to see those capillaries. And I'll show you some angiograms, okay? So you can't see the capillary, you see the arteries and veins, you see the optic nerve. And what's the optic nerve do? It carries all the information from the retina to the brain so you can see. It's the cable that carries it. Okay? And what's this thing right here? That is the macula. So it looks big in the picture, but indeed when you saw it on the whole, in terms of the whole retina, it's extremely small, small, a small part of the retina, but obviously a very critical one. If you have macular damage, it doesn't cause blindness. That's why people with macular degeneration don't go blind, right? They never go black blind or they can't see at all. But they lose their central vision, so they can't read, recognize people, and drive. Okay? So now how does diabetes... So let me show you a couple dramatic pictures of diabetic retinopathy. Okay? So here you can see... uh, Let's recognize some key things. What's this? Optic nerve, is this an artery or a vein? That's actually a vein, okay? And the reason it is, is because you notice how the blood here is darker than the, the one. It always alternates, artery, vein, artery, vein, artery, vein. So look at this vessel next to it. It has gl- blood here, which is pinker. This has been deoxygenated. It turns darker, okay? When you get, don't get oxygen, turn blue, right? Blood turns darker. So, and also veins tend to be a little, a little thicker, I mean wider than, than the arteries, Okay. And then you see these other changes here, and these are, what are these things here? It's hemorrhages, those, we call them hemorrhages, right? So it's hemorrhages, ret, these are retinal hemorrhages, it's a hallmark of the disease. 
Also, remember I said, what, what's the primary change that we see in the early stages of diabetes? Leakage of blood vessels, right? So if you imagine what's going through your bloodstream, it's fluid, it's you know, serum, right? Proteinaceous fluid. It's, there are fats in that fluid. And indeed, when the blood vessels leak, you can see these fats precipitate out. And can you see these yellow dots here? See them here? That's fat. That's called lipid. Okay? What, if you get a big hole in a blood vessel, what do you get then? You get red cells leaking out. Okay? And that's why you see hemorrhages. So leaking blood vessels is the early changes we see, and usually the first change we can see that where the leakage comes from are things called microaneurysms. I'll show you a picture of one or, or several, which are little dilated blood, little dilated parts of capillaries, and that's where there's damage to the capillary wall, and then you get the leakage of the fluid, the lipid, and even and even and even blood if, 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 if these if these if these little things rupture. Do you follow me? Okay. We call this non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. The reason we call it non-proliferative is because proliferative means there's growth of abnormal blood vessels. Remember I said there's three changes, right? You're going to become experts at the end of this, and I will be quizzing you, okay? So the, 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 the first change is leakage of blood vessels, and you see all the manifestations of the leakage, right? You get the swelling, which is macular edema. You get the lipid coming out. You get the blood coming out. Those are all signs of leakage. The, the, the other change you see is closure of the blood vessels. And you see this little white spot up here at the top? That's an area where a little blood vessel is closed and the retina has lost its transparency. It turns white. Okay? Now, there's no neovascularization. There's no, new ab there's no abnormal blood vessels growing here. And so we call this non-proliferative. Proliferative means proliferation of abnormal new blood vessels. And I'll show you why we care about those, those blood vessels in a moment. Okay? Here's the other eye. Generally, the eyes are symmetric. The, eye te the eyes tend to behave the same, and they tend to look, look the same, not, not surprisingly. Often we'll see a diet, not often, sometimes we'll see a diabetic patient who has a really bad retinopathy on one side, and the other eye has virtually none. That often means there's a problem with blood flow to the eye that doesn't have any. So it's, it's the high blood pressure may not be going to that eye because they have a blockage in a neck, neck artery, which blocks the blood flow to the eye, so the retinopathy is less aggravated on that side. But generally, it tends to be symmetric, and these, this patient has a very symmetric retinopathy, right? So what are these things here? Right, and these are hemorrhages, right? And I don't see any of those little white areas where the... Here's one. That's where you closed off a little blood vessel there, Okay. I always find schematics are the easiest way to learn this stuff. So this is a schematic, okay? And here you can see a normal capillary, which we can't see clinically, right? I told you you can't see those things. They're too small to see when you take a picture or look at the eye even, okay? So here's the capillary right here. And what's this thing here? That's the microaneurysm, right? They're small, so they call them microaneurysm. just means it does. You can have an abdominal aortic aneurysm. You've probably heard of those. People get big aneurysms here. They get an aneurysm in their brain. It's just a dilated portion of a blood vessel where the blood vessel wall is damaged. There's damage to the wall. And now under the effect of the blood pressure, it bulges out. Okay? And now, because that wall is damaged, it can leak fluid, leak blood. And what are these things? Those are the lipid, the exudates I showed you in the picture, right? So this would be, they call it swollen retina, which we know is the better term is edema. Okay? They don't show any, any hemorrhages leaking out, but these are all the changes that occur. And that's, these are the changes in non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, non-proliferative meaning there's no, abnormal, there's no growth of abnormal blood vessels. And importantly, even though that sounds like a less severe form of the disease, once you get enough swelling in the retina in the macular region, that's the most common cause of visual loss in diabetes. Macular edema is the most common cause of visual loss in diabetes. Okay? Number one, by far and away. We see it all the time in our clinic. And 
And I'll tell you another thing. So we used to treat macular edema with laser, and that would stabilize vision. But now in a lot of patients using these injections, we can actually take someone who has macular edema and visual loss, treat them with the injections, and their vision gets better and stays, stays better. So that's a dramatic improvement in the way we can treat the most common cause of visual loss in diabetes. You follow me? All right. So let's go on. Here's another patient, right? And we see now the optic nerve. What do these things up here? Hemorrhages. And those things might be a little closure, those little white spots, remember? And now we get to the macula, which is here, right? There's the macula. And you see some little hemorrhages, and I can't really tell if that's a little exudate or not. So I'm thinking to myself, is there really macular edema? And as of like 1996, the way we would solve that problem is we would look, we'd put a little contact lens on that. I'll show you a picture one. Here, here it is. Okay, we put that lens on the eye. I put a drop of anesthetic on the eye. I put some like, you know, gel so this thing would stick. I put it on the patient's eye. And I would look through stereoscopically with both my eyes under a microscope essentially to see whether I could see physical swelling of the macula. Okay? And it took a long time to learn how to do that. It's not easy to do to be able to look at this thing and tell whether it's swollen or normal and what parts of it are swollen or how close the swelling is to the center. So we developed this whole clinical skill to do that. And I learned how to use it. I spent six, eight months in fellowship in Miami learning how to put this contact lens and make those kinds of clinical observations. Now by development of technology, namely the development of a thing called OCT, or optical coherence tomography, that same determination can be made better than I could ever do it on my own. Okay? It's made in a matter of a minute or two. It can be done through a non-dilated pupil. There's nothing put on the eye. There's no jelly, no bright lights in the patient's eye. It does a much better job than I, could have, than I ever did at it. Okay? And I'm going to show you, show you some pictures of that. So that's a big change in our field. So here's, the, here's what I would do. I would, this isn't obviously me. There's a lot more hair on this, this doctor. And I would, I would be holding the contact lens up to the eye, and we'd put that thing on there, and then you'd stare at it and say, is it thick or not? Okay? Do you follow that? Okay. So once we saw, this is sort of, I'm, t- I'm sure I'm showing you before and after. Before is not like, you know, 40 years ago. I'm talking like this, these, these things are, have happened in the last, mostly in the last decade, okay? What we would do then, if we saw the thick, we put the lens on the eye. And I looked in there and stared and go, ah, it looks kind of thick, thick to me. At that point, we said, now the patient has, what would the diagnosis be? Macular edema. Macular edema, right? And we call it diabetic macular edema because there's many causes of, diabetic, of macular edema. So patient has macroedema, and now we'd, wanna, we'd want to cauterize, essentially cauterize those leaking blood vessels, because I told you the primary thing that causes macroedema in diabetes is what? Leaking blood vessels. So I want to cauterize those leaking blood vessels, and we used a laser. Okay? So now I've got to figure out where are the leaking blood vessels. I told you you can't see the capillaries, right? So now I've got to find a way to see them. So what we do is we inject this dye. Can you see the dye there? It's right there. It's this orange dye called fluorescein. It's a plant dye. Pretty harmless. It goes in through a vein. It doesn't go through an artery like you have to do if you're doing coronary angiography or cerebral angiography. It goes in through a vein here. And then as this goes through, the photographer takes pictures and the dye fluoresces and you get really high resolution pictures. Okay? So here's a fluorescein angiogram now in the early frames. So what do you see? This is the optic nerve, right? Here's the arteries and veins, the big arteries and veins. But now you're seeing more detail. Right? You're seeing these things. What are these little white things? No. Remember, remember. 
No, no, wait, wait, wait. Let's think this through, okay? Let's think this through. The fluorescein goes in your arm vein, okay? Then it goes to your heart, okay? Then it's going and making its way up to the eye, right? So the fluorescein fills what? Blood vessels. Blood vessels, right? Arteries first. Fills blood vessels, right? So everywhere I'm seeing fluorescein here in the retina is in blood vessels, okay? So... Here, these, these are the little tiny blood vessels that I maybe couldn't see before, right? Yep. If I looked at a color photo, those are capillaries. But what are these bulbs on the capillaries? Mic- this, those are microaneurysms. Those are the little aneurysms I said happen in the capillaries, and those are the where there's da- damage to the blood vessels. And those microaneurysms do what? Leak. Leak. Okay? Now, this fluorescein, we don't take one picture during the fluorescein angiogram. We take a bunch of pictures. Why? Because they don't start leaking instantaneously the first time they see the fluorescein. It takes minutes for this stuff to start leaking out. Okay? If I take a normal retina and inject the fluorescein dye into the arm, it shows me the retinal blood vessels, it shows me the capillaries, it leaves the eye, and none of it leaks out because there's what's called a blood ocular barrier that prevents the fluorescein from leaking out. In diabetes, we know the first thing I told you is that barrier is damaged, Right? That's why I said in diabetes, one of the main changes that occurs in the blood vessels early is what? Leakage. Okay? So now the fluorescein is a surrogate for what happens to your normal blood as it goes through. It leaks. Okay? So now if I, how am I going to determine, how am I going to prove this fluorescein is leaking? Time. Exactly. So now, I don't, this is 59 seconds. I, don't even, I didn't even look in preparing this lecture what the time was, but it's going to be more advanced. Okay? This is five minutes. So that was one minute. This is five minutes. It's four minutes later, okay? Now you see, you sort of see the, you see the microanders, but see how much fluorescein is leaked out of each one of these? It's almost like a stone in a pond. You know, you just see waves of the stuff just leaking out around it, okay? So that's, that's proof of the pudding there. These blood vessels, these microanders actually leak. So then what you would do now, what we did until recently, is we would go back. Oh, it doesn't do it, does it? We would go back. And we would use this picture as a map. Okay, we don't use that other one, it's too, it's too blurry. Take the early one as a map, you, you project this picture on the wall, or you know, by, 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 this, by the laser, you put the lens on, that same lens I showed you, put it on the patient's side with, with all the goop. You focus in there, you locate each little number, you go, you know at the end of this little blood vessel, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight microaneurysms. You find those blood vessels, and you go, boom, 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 you hit each microaneurysm. And the patient's eyes are moving around. It's, it's tricky. Because these distances are extremely small, right? Like how far is it from here to here? That's about a millimeter or less. A millimeter, 25th of an inch. Okay, so these distances are very small. So we have to be very good. Because if the patient moves and they look at your laser, you hit them in the dead center, then the laser hits that. Sorry. Then the laser hits them in the dead center, and then they can't, they can't see anymore, right? You blinded them. So that's the trick. We don't quite go into that much detail with the patients. But, but, but that, was the, that was the trick with laser, okay? So, uh, but we, we, we got good at doing that. I, I was rare to hear of a problem, okay? So that's the way we did it. And we'd, cut those, we'd shut those things off. We'd cauterize them. They'd stop leaking. The edema would go away. But almost never would the vision improve substantially. It would stay about where it was if it was a, a successful treatment. You follow me? All right, so now, 
So the old thing was we called focal laser. Focal laser. And here would be an example of what it looked like. This is going to be pretty striking. Okay. Here is the picture. You can see the microorganisms. This is the post-therapy picture. The normal retina, the color of the normal retina is what? Don't say orange. Every resident says orange when I ask them that question. That's the wrong answer. The retina is actually transparent. It's clear. Okay? The cells underneath it are orange. Okay? That's why it has an orange retina. So if you, if you, if you, you know, close off blood vessels in the retina, I showed you that white spot. It loses transparency. Remember that white spot? If you burn or cauterize the retina with the, with the laser, it also loses transparency. It turns white. So all of those white things there are laser spots. Okay? And then when that thing heals, it looks like this. See the laser scars? These are all scars from laser, but the edema is gone. But, you know, you can see it's a destructive therapy. Now, a lot of times the retina, it doesn't, it doesn't look as bad as it, as it, as it really is. But, you know, a lot of times the, those cells regenerate pretty well, overline those scars. But still, it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest of therapies. It, was, it stabilized vision. So if you caught it early, it would stabilize vision. But on the other hand, vision really didn't improve. So if someone came in with already significant visual loss, we, we often even didn't even do laser because it wasn't really going to improve the vision. And then it was a somewhat destructive, uh, destructive therapy. Okay? All right. You follow me with everything I'm saying so far? Okay, I spent a lot of time on leaking blood vessels. Now we're going to go quickly through vascular closure. And what's the third change? Growth of new blood vessels. And that's called what? Proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Okay? All right, so now, where are the, clo- this is what, what, what kind of picture am I showing you here? Fluorescein angiogram. We'll just call it FA. Okay, it's an FA. It's not colored, right? It's black and white, and you see the blood vessels are filled up with the white stuff, right? So it's a fluorescein angiogram. Now, where is the blood vessel closure on this picture? It's, this is a hard, hard question. Look, look here. Is there, look at the color here. You can't, you can't, I mean, you don't really see any blood vessels. You see this, you know, here's an artery, I guess. This is a vein. These are what? Microaneurysms, right? This is a subtle change, but look at the sort of color of this area compared to that area. It's dark. You close the blood vessels. Then if you start looking closely, you can see this kind of pruned look here of these blood vessels. See them? They're just kind of cut off. And that's, that's, that's closure of these small... Usually what we call precapillary arterioles there are the little tiny blood vessels, arterioles, right before you get to the capillaries. Certainly the capillaries are lost there. And if you were to like check someone's visual field in this patient where you could put a, put a light, say put a light here, they would see it, put a light here, they'd see it. But this retina here is dead. Okay, it's, it's like almost like, had a, it's like an infarct. It's had a heart attack almost, right? You know? So it's, you've closed off the blood supply. The, the, there's no viable tissue here. So if I shine a light in that area the patient will not be able to see it, okay? But they are almost completely unaware of this, okay? So the patients can have this kind of profound change in the closure of these capillaries, these small blood vessels, and almost all of them are asymptomatic. They're not aware of it, okay? But when we detect it, we know that the patients are at significant risk for what? No, 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 the macronine, no, no, no. Proliferative of what? What do we call that? It's growth of the new blood vessels. And the technical term for that is neovascularization. Neo is new. Vascularization is, is formation of blood vessels. Okay? And why do I care about neovascularization? Because I told you the blood vessels are fragile. And what happens to fragile blood vessels? 
they bleed, okay? And this is a really interesting thing about diabetes, okay? This is, this is inside di diabetes information, okay? So when I showed you the leaking blood vessels that likewise bleed, where are those blood vessels located? They're located within the retina. And the retina is this tight tissue. It's compact. There's zillions, of, there's 10 layers of cells and axons and all this stuff. There's not a lot of room in that retina. There's some, but there's not a lot. So the blood, when, it, when, you, when these things burst open and bleed, first of all, there's not a lot of pressure in them, but they, they burst and bleed. They can, it's confined by the retina. It almost like pushes everything closed. They can't get a huge hemorrhage. On the other hand, the neovascularization, those blood vessels don't grow in the retina. They grow from the retina out into the gel. Let's see, I should have had a picture of that to show you, but I'm going to go back. So those blood vessels in neovascularization grow from here into this, into this hollow part of the eye called the vitreous, which is actually 80% of the eye. It's a gel that fills the eye. Okay? And uh, they grow from there, and when they bleed, that vitreous cavity is not so compact. So when those blood vessels burst open, they start pouring out blood. If you start pouring out enough blood in the vitreous cavity, what happens? You can't see. It blocks your vision. Right? So it's quite dramatic. Those little tiny hemorrhages in the retina, are patients aware of those? No. Almost never. Okay? Those patients I showed you are very dramatic patients. This patient, they would probably, well, this patient, this patient would probably not know anything was wrong with their eye. Their vision could easily be 20-20, and they would, they would not be aware of this stuff. But you put a few drops in that vitreous gel, it blocks your vision. You're darn well aware of that. You can't see. Okay? I'm going to show you a vitreous hemorrhage in a minute. You follow me? All right. So now, this is a great picture. I love this picture, okay? So first of all, it's a, I just pulled this off the internet. So this is a, a fluorescent angiogram. You guys all recognize these. And what's the abbreviation for that? FA, FA right? Okay. So, so you tell me where you think the, where the blood vessel closure is. Exactly. Is this blood vessel closure? How about that? How about that? Again, this patient probably asymptomatic. You know what I mean by asymptomatic? They're not complaining of anything. Walk in your office. How's it going? Good. You check their vision. Twenty twenty. Okay. Unaware. But this patient is about untreated. Will will lose all their vision. You know. So 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 here is here is usually this neovascularization. These abnormal blood vessels. You're getting the. You have some. You have closure blood vessels here, and right at the margin where there's this relatively decent blood supply and no blood supply is where you get the growth of new abnormal blood vessels or neovascularization. Again, we're not much for saying long words in this specialty, so we call it NV. Just like we call fluorescent angiogram FA, we call neovascularization NV. Okay? So we see NV. So it turns out that, remember I said that the, when, you, when, when these blood vessels bleed, they bleed in the vitreous cavity. They grow through the retina. There's nothing confining them. them nothing confining that, that, that blood. It just bleeds out freely. Similarly, the fluorescein that leaks from these blood vessels, okay, leaks out much more copiously because there's nothing confining it. Same as it's analogous to the blood. You follow that? So, so these things are like, they stick out like sore thumbs on, a, on an FA. Okay? So I'm going to answer you in one, one second. So show, show me where there's neovascularization here. Are there three patches of neovascularization here? Are there about 20 patches of vascularization? Are there one patch of neovascularization? A lot, right? I'm going about tw more than 20. This, 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 this. And see how they're all pretty close to the word that, not all of them, 
but most of them are close to the area of perfused, which means there's blood flow, and non-perfused, which means there's blood, there's blood vessel closure. They're right at that junction. Do you see that? Okay. So that's neovascularization. And why do we care about neovascularization? Because it can bleed and take away the vision. Okay, sir, yes, you had a question. Yes, <clears throat> this patient or this person, they had normal peripheral vision? Pretty much. I mean, they, you're, you're right. It's a very good, good question. Okay, this is a... The question the gentleman's asking is this. If you've, if you've killed off all this retina, that's what I told you happens when you close the blood vessel. Dead retina, dead retina, dead retina. Okay, you've knocked off that much retina. How could, the, how could your peripheral vision, your side vision, possibly be normal? Okay, well... In this patient, it probably isn't normal, but it's more normal than you'd suspect. Because it turns out, again, I'm going to go back to this picture. So even though the, whole, the retina goes from here, that's the insertion of the retina, it's called the ora serrata, all the way back, all the way back to the optic nerve. That's the retina, okay? This is a cross-section. You only see with the retina out to about there. This part of the retina is non-seeing. So if I shine a light out here, a bright laser light, you will not see it, Okay? Diabetes or no diabetes, okay? If I shine the light out here, you will see it, okay? In, in, in. So, so if you've killed off retina from here to here, the edge of the retina is killed off from there, you don't notice it because that's non-seeing retina to begin with. Why do we have it then? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. It's a very good question. So this patient, though, you would, you would say, what am I going to do about this neovascularization? Because it's, it's going to bleed eventually. Untreated. You could cauterize it, a lot to cauterize, and, that's, and, the, and the stimulus for it is this dead retina, so it's going to keep on growing, right? So I think this is the story, it's a really interesting story, how they figure this stuff out. You know, a lot of, a lot of doctors who experience, you know, they figure stuff out because they, they make a clinical observation on one patient, and then they're able to generalize that and figure something out. So these, the Be- this Dr. Beetham, I think he was in Joslin, um, at Harvard, and he had, a, he had a patient who had... Remember I said both eyes behave the same? So in one eye of a patient who was diabetic, there was severe proliferative... Now you guys understand what that means. It means a lot of vascularization, diabetic retinopathy. The other eye, virtually no retinopathy at all. Okay? And I said you look for blood flow, no blood flow problem. But the other eye did have one thing that was really interesting. It had a previous infection or inflammation in the eye, and there's a tremendous amount of scarring... Okay, in the eye from the inflammation. Okay, a lot of scarring, and that I didn't get the severe neovascularization. So at that time, this guy named Meyer Schrickerwaff from Germany had developed a xenon arc photocoagulator, which was some like powerful machine that could put light into your eye and cause a scar to form. Okay, on purpose. You can aim it. Okay, so what they did is they took a diabetic patient and they. Took, who had proliferative disease, had a lot of neovascularization, they put this xenon arc photocoagulator sort of firing in spots this thing created scars on purpose. And the neovascularization went away. Okay? And that's exactly the way we treat it today. We use a laser to do exactly the same thing. But that was made on a chance clinical observation. Do you understand that? Okay. That's the way a lot of stuff happens in medicine. Okay? It's true. It's true. So good doctors make a lot of these chance observations. Yes? You do. That's a very point. Now let, let's go back to this gentleman's question. We're gonna and we're gonna see. Supposing I take this whole area of dead retina that's making some making a factor. Right, usually it's the area right next to the dead retina that's making a factor that's causing these blood vessels to grow. 
Okay? And I take my laser and I fire here and I create scars here and here and maybe even to get a little bit into here with my scarring to kill that retina that's making that factor. Will the patient notice it? No, not really. Okay? Because it's already dead retina. Okay? So if I treat dead retina, there's no, there's no harm, no foul. Okay? So generally, generally, if you take a patient and you treat them and have a lot of dead retina, they may notice nothing. But some patients do. Some patients will say their, their peripheral vision is good. They'll say their night vision isn't as good because a lot of times you use the more peripheral parts of your retina to see at night. You don't look directly at a star if you want to see you look a little bit off to the side. So your peripheral vision is really sensitive for that. That's where all the rods are concentrated. That have, they're very sensitive to very dim lights. So... So it, some patients will note it, but a lot of people that have a lot of proliferative disease have already killed off a lot of retina, and that's why those blood vessels grew in the first place. So if you're treating that area, it's already dead with the, you know, with the laser, they're not so aware of it. You follow me? All right. Okay, so let's, let's take a picture. Let's see what neovascularization looks like clinically. There it is. You see these weird-looking blood vessels? Now, if I, were, if I did an angiogram, what do you think you'd see here? Dead retina, right? Non-perfused retina. Capillary closure. That's the precursor, right? You close the blood vessels and the neovascularization grows. Okay, now I'm going to show you what happens from the neovascularization. Okay? You can get a little hemorrhage like this. And where's this? This is interesting. Where is this hemorrhage located? It's not broken into the vitreous cavity. Okay? It looks like it's kind of confined, does, does, doesn't it? That's because the vitreous is still attached in this patient. There's still a nice form vitreous over the area. But you can see that the hemorrhage is trying to get there. The hemorrhage is more, is more what we call superficial. And why do I say that? Because the hemorrhage, in contrast to those diabetic hemorrhages, is in front of the blood vessels. It's in front. It's between the retina and, and the solid vit vitreous cavity. Call that a pre-retinal hemorrhage. Remember I said the blood vessels grow through the retina? When they bleed, that blood blocks your view of the retina. You can't see the retina there. See that? All right. Here's another one. But now what happens when there's a little more, little more gel for it to go into, a little more liquid for it to go to? You get that. So what's this patient's vision? You can barely make out anything. Anyone see anything here? There's maybe the nerve is there. See that? This vessel coming off. But the patient, this patient's barely going to be able to make out the big E on the eye chart. Okay? And why did this happen? Why did this happen? First of all, would it be preventable? How would it be preventable? Exactly. Okay? So if this patient had been seen, if this patient had been seen by the ophthalmologist, let's, take, let's pretend the patient looked like this. And then we've gone ahead and done a laser treatment on this patient. The blood vessels would wither away, which they do, and they would not get the hemorrhage. Okay? So the key, and, and can, you, can you tell you have those blood vessels in your eye? I already told you, no, you can't. Okay? So the key with this whole disease is constant scrutiny by the ophthalmologist. Okay? And I'm going to talk about it. And I told you at the beginning that, I was, that, was, that that's a public health issue because about half of the patients, almost 50% of the patients with diabetes don't go to their eye doctor to get the exam. Okay, that's nationwide. All right, you guys follow me so far? Is this of interest to you, or am I getting a little too, too, too technical? They do. They, they do. Still don't go. I know our offices are cold and dark, and we put drops in their eyes, and no one really wants to go. Okay. So now I told you that we treat, we treat these people that have proliferative diagnopathy, who have the neovascularization, to make the blood vessels wither away, 
so they don't bleed and they don't lose their vision. Now, we have recourse if they, if they, they do bleed. It's not game over. Sometimes the blood will clear spontaneously on its own. Or sometimes we go in the eye and actually... Oh. Sometimes we can actually go, go inside the eye and pull out... That's the that's Andy Mayberry thing, right? So we can... We can, we can uh, it's a pretty good song. So anyway, we, we go in there and we can actually take, do a thing called a vitrectomy, which is something we do in our microscope, and we, um, we, remove, the, we remove the blood. But it's not without risk. So it's better if you could do the laser and prevent the need for surgery. Okay? All right, this is what an eye looks like that's had laser for proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So what do you see here? Always start from the back and move your way out. Exactly. That's from the neovascularization, right? Fortunately, it wasn't a big hemorrhage. It's a small one like I showed you. The patient was caught early. What else do you see now? Those are all laser spots. It's pretty dramatic, right? Wow is right. Okay, it's a lot of laser, but that's what we do. And that's where that guy Beetham got the idea from, from seeing that patient that had a lot of spontaneous scarring from, from the old infection. And we, now we do it in a very controlled way, and you can see how perfectly placed the laser spots are. We have machines now that, that do that for us. They scan and they put in really nice patterns. Yeah. Okay. So notice, notice though that we're leaving this part untouched, right? So that's that allows you to to, to still see well in the center. That's what we're all about. This disease. We want to we want to preserve your macular vision, so you can read, you can drive still, recognize. You have a hard time often with night driving, but day driving will be fine with this. Okay. All right. Now, I told you, so that's sort of like, uh, that's sort of, I would say, diabetes, you know, 1995, diabetes 2, 2000. But now we're in 2014. So how has the management of this disease changed? Okay, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm going to spend some time talking about now. So I've already given you some highlights of this. One thing, as I told you, is that the way we actually image the eye now is using a thing called OCT, or optical coherence tomography, is this machine here. It's one variant of it. And we can get beautiful pictures of the macula. We can see if there's macroedema, how the, how the eye response to treatments for macroedema can be quantified very, very precisely using this device. And this thing uses an infrared light. It shines in your eye. You can go through a non-dilated pupil. You don't need any dilating drops. The light's not bright. It takes just a couple minutes to image, and we get these beautiful pictures. So it's a huge advantage over the old contact lens. Okay, so we're not using this thing anymore, okay? No more, Okay. The other thing now is instead of using, we still use laser to treat proliferative diabetic retinopathy. We still use laser to treat the neovascularization. Okay? That has not changed. But I said the bulk of visual loss in diabetes was from what? Macroedema. Exactly. Macroedema is the leading cause. And now for macroedema, we virtually never do the laser I showed you. We don't get the angiogram. We don't try to identify the little leaky microorganisms like hit them with the laser and hope we don't, we don't miss. Okay? Now we give an injection in the eye of a drug which stops the leakage. And when it stops the leakage, the eye's own cells reabsorb the fluid. It goes away and the vision gets better. Okay? Now an injection in the eye sounds like a horrible thing. I don't think anyone in this room, myself included, wants an injection in their eye. And when they first, one of my friends developed the first drug to do for injection, and I just said, there's no way this is going to fly. Okay? So, 
I'm going to tell you about the I'm going to tell you about the injections in a second. But I tell you, there are, we we now as retinal specialists spend a good part of our day when we're seeing patients injecting these drugs in the eye. So our practice has changed dramatically. And I'm telling you, most patients I see when we don't inject them because they have to get injected multiple times a year, some as frequently as every month. When we do this and you skip a time, they are disappointed. Okay, so so let me explain to you what what we do with the injections, just so you know. First of all, we can make it so the injection, the, giving the injection itself does not hurt at all. And the way we can do that, we can numb up the eye. Not only, like, if I go in and I cut myself, and they're going to put stitches in, they, they numb me up, and sure enough, I know I won't feel the stitches going in, but that numbing injection hurts, okay? The dental numbing injection is not so bad, but we have a way of doing sequential numbing on the eye where we first put in an eye drop, and then a little pledge of numbing, and then an injection numbing. So none of the steps except that initial eye drop, which is just an anesthetic. That, that's the only thing that mildly stings. The, the, the rest of the anesthetic process is painless. Okay? Painless. And then once it's anesthetized and we give the injection, you feel some pressure, but you don't feel any pain. So we can do the process painlessly. The only thing that patients do feel, we're working on this, is uh, patients, when we, when we inject in the eye, we always you've got to clean the surface of the eye. You're going to inject bacteria, and that would be a disaster. Okay? So because you get infection in the eye, it's, it can, you can lose all your vision. So what we do is we put a betadine drop on the eye before we do the injection. And that betadine drop, let's sit there for a couple of minutes, that often will almost like a burn the surface of the eye. It irritates the surface of the eye. We wash it out when we're done, but patients will not infrequently say, boy, you know, for a day after these injections, my eyes irritate. It feels like there's something in the eye, like grit you know, or sand. And that's the only problem. We can treat that with artificial tears, and we're working on a new medicine now to take that feeling away. But that's the major thing that people feel. It's not the injection. It's this irritation from that antiseptic. But we have to use the antiseptic. Okay? So um, it's probably more about injections than you really wanted to know. But those are the two big things that we have. So let me show you OCT first. So this is what it, we look at a cross-section. You've already seen cross-sections. And this shows you, if you were to take someone, you know, when they, when they pass away and, you know, get the eye, take it out, fix it and then stain it and you cut it and stain it, you would see these cross-sectional views called histology. It's the anatomy, right? The microanatomy of the eye. And this is the this is the macula. See that nice dip in there? That's the most that's the center of the macula called the fovea. And that's what it looks like. Okay? This is what an OCT scan looks like of your eye. That's that scan that we get in a matter of two minutes. It's like a biopsy. It's an optical biopsy of your eye. And OCT works just it's like ultrasound, except you use light. So you're, you're shining lights in the eye, the lights come back, processes the information, and generates these extremely high-resolution pictures. It's amazing. Okay, it's a huge advance in the way we diagnose macular disease. Okay, we use this as indispensable in our treatment of macular degeneration, diabetes, and a bunch of other things that we see in the clinic now. Is that commonly used in normal examinations? So, you know, if someone comes in for a routine check, they're 40 years old and they're coming in for glasses, no. We use it if there's a complaint, like someone complains of blurred vision, or they say, my, when I look at lines, they look wavy, which would be signs of macular disease. Then we'll get an OCT. But it's, it's not, we don't get it on every patient that comes in. Like if someone comes in and flashes and floaters, and I'm worried they have a tear in the edge of their retina, I don't get an OCT. I look at the edge of their retina. What's the downside of an OCT? Nothing. Just cost. It's, not, it's $45 for both eyes, somewhere in that range, I think. Yeah. But there's no point in having it, you know, if you don't need it, Right? Okay, so what's this? Exactly. So see how it shows very nicely. These are the, the swelling in the retina. 
this is no contact lens. And also we can quantify it. It measures the thickness here and here and here. All around you get these numbers. And then if you treat, you can see what happens to those numbers. Okay? Now these are the injections. So we inject the drug in there. There's some leaking blood vessels back there from macrodema. And usually in a matter of just a few days, patients start noticing improvement. The medicines themselves last four weeks, six weeks in the eye. And then usually what we'll do is we'll start off with a series of three injections separated by about a month each. So inject on day one, one month later, one month later. So by two months, they've gotten three injections because we inject on day zero. Okay? And then we'll bring them back. We'll get an OCT scan. If the fluid's all gone on OCT, there's no more swelling, we give them a pass. We don't inject, but we might bring them back in four or six weeks again and do another OCT. If we come back in four or six weeks and the OCT again shows swelling, shows macrodema, we inject again and bring them back another four or six weeks. So we're constantly doing these OCT scans on patients and injecting them probably about half of the time, somewhere in that range. Okay. Now, how could that be mitigated? Well, supposing someone has really high blood pressure, okay? And as we know, blood pressure causes fluid to leak out of blood vessels. It's a pressure head driving the fluid out. And they control the blood pressure. That may reduce the macrodema, okay? And, and then they don't, need, they don't need any injections, okay? If someone has poor control of their blood sugar, often control the, better control of the blood sugar, excuse me, better control of the blood sugar will also have an effect on diabetic retinopathy, as I'll discuss. And, uh, and that, that in and of itself can also cause less, less, less macrodema. So we often look for these systemic factors, better control of the blood sugar, better control of the blood pressure, to reduce macrodema so that we can reduce the frequency or, 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 or completely eliminate the need to give these intravitreal injections. Uh, intravitreal just means inside the vitreous cavity. Yes, sir? Does it matter where you inject, or does the vitreous it disperses, but we like to go, you know, obviously if you inject too far to the front, you go through the lens. If you inject too far to the back, you go through the retina, okay, which would cause a retinal hole and potentially a retinal detachment. So we usually go about three or four millimeters back behind right where the cornea ends, and that's a safe area to inject. Okay. All right. Now here's a patient that got injected, and you can see here an is not projecting too well, but here's an, OC, an OCT scan, right? See the swelling here, the edema, this measure 412 microns. One month after the injection, that's anti-VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, that's what we're going after with these injections. The thing has shrunk way down. What's it say, 282 there? Yeah. So that's, that's essentially normal. Okay, so these injections really work. The patients see it as better vision, and we see it as an improvement on the OCT. What is the vascular endothelial growth factor? actually do normally on the physiology of the other? The question is, what does vascular endothelial growth factor normally do? It means it promotes blood, blood vessel growth. And there's some debate that perhaps if you really suppress this stuff, and certainly when we started using it, we worried if we suppressed it, that normal blood vessels might wither away. But it doesn't seem like it really happens. Okay? Is, it, is it upregulated? It is. So any, anytime you get those areas that, that we show these areas here, when you have this kind of situation here where you've got a lot of capillary closure, there's a, a hypoxic factor that's released that stimulates release of vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF. And, and it initially was called vascular permeability factor because it was known to massively increase the permeability or leakage of these blood vessels, which I said is the primary change that we see in macroedema, right? So when we, when we suppressed it with these, you know, we can suppress it with, with antibodies or you can suppress it with fake receptors that, that bind to it. So it binds to the wrong receptor and then it can't bind to the, to, to, to the target cell. And so when it does that, you take it out of the picture, and when you take it out of the picture, the blood vessels stop leaking, and then the retina resorbs the fluid that's there, and you end up seeing better. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, how, the, um, what is the causality again? Is it the um, closures and then death and proliferation causes the edema, or does the edema cause the problems with vessels? You know, that's a really good question. I, I, the, the way that we think about it is it's the blood vessel closure. So let's go back to this. This is, this is you know, I showed you the neovascularization. So how do, I, how do I, as a doctor, I said that pretty much my contact lens skills, remember that putting the contact lens there to detect macroedema? That's a, now that's like a buggy, you know, riding a horse and cures instead of going, going in a car, okay? No one needs that skill anymore. That contact lens sits in a drawer and never pull it out. Okay, I spent eight months of my life learning to use it. It's a completely useless skill, okay? But there's still one skill we need, and this is a tough one. Is we need to look in there with this lens. It's not a contact lens. It's called a 90 adopter lens. You hold it in front of the eye. And what am I going to look for with this lens? I'm going to look for two things. Is I, want to, I want to see how bad the retinopathy is, how bad the eye disease is. Because even though we say patients with diabetes should come in annually for an eye exam, if you've got more advanced disease, I can't wait a year. You could come in, you could already have a hemorrhage in the eye. You know, you could bleed from neovascularization. So depending on the severity of the retinopathy, that, <clears throat> that determines how often you've got to be seen. So I got to grade, classify the retinopathy in every patient. I look around the retina to do that. And <clears throat> when I look in with this lens, I see something like this. Okay? But that's the picture I'm seeing, and that's what I got to see. I got to see a lot. And this goes up this way, goes up that way goes down that way and goes out that way. And we have to get out there pretty far to make sure we've, we've classified the retinopathy and we haven't missed what? <clears throat> haven't missed what? It begins with an N. Exactly. Because if I miss a neovascularization, I don't do that laser treatment, what happens? Patient comes in, they say, I can't see anymore. And I think to myself, if only I'd seen any vascularization and done laser, they wouldn't be in that position. And then you can't sleep at night because you feel bad. You don't, want to, you don't want that to happen. Okay? So this is a tricky exam. It's hard to do. Patients not sitting there like that picture. I can tell you that. Their eyes darting all over the place. You know, the light's bright in their eye. They're closing their other eye. They got a little cataract. It's tricky. Okay? So what I, my goal in life is to do for what OCT did for that contact lens, eliminate it and give me a much better exam. My, one of the things I've been interested in is trying to replace this exam, which is designed to classify the retinopathy and determine whether there's neovascularization and automate that process as well. Because if I have a hard time doing this after 25 years, think of someone who's not as experienced approaches this. Okay? All right. How'd you get the pictures then, the color pictures? What do you mean? These pictures. Are taken by a camera. And that's not good enough to diagnose. Good question. Good question. Okay. So why not just, why not just instead of me doing the exam, why not just take a color picture and look at the color picture, right? And you certainly can do that, okay? A lot of times, though, and, and I'll tell you, there's a big move in ophthalmology to do that. For instance, Kaiser now, they take color pictures of their, of their, of their patients, and then, and then the color pictures are read out by a reading center. They say, your retinopathy looks good this year, or your retinopathy, hey, you've got a little more severe disease, you need to be seen by a retinal specialist. Or you have, you have neovascularization, and we need to see it right away. Okay? So the, there's really no, no reason that that couldn't be the standard of, of care. Now, there's things that you don't see in color pictures. Like 
If someone's got some bleeding, a lot of times the bleeding will settle down to the bottom of the eye by gravity. You'll miss that in the color picture. Okay? It's also, you can't see capillary closure in color pictures. We can see signs of it. There are changes that occur in the blood vessels when you have capillary closure. But I told you you can't see capillaries, and you can't see capillary closure. So you miss that. You miss that on these things. Obviously, you want to examine the rest of the eye as well. Okay? Which you can't do just from a picture. But I'll tell you, I would say if you take the average sort of retina per, non-retina person out there who doesn't do this for a living, every day looking at retinas, and you compare really good quality photographs, and that's not always easy to get, okay? But get really good, really good quality photographs compared to the average exam, the quality photographs are going to win out, okay? Yes? What about the, the fluorescent? Do the fluorescent angiogram? Right, because that, you said you could, you could see the You're my show in the audience, right? Okay. <laughs> so, 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 so that's what I'm going to talk about next, okay? So now why not, why not, since you can see the capillaries and see the changes really well at fluorescent angiogram, why not do a fluorescent angiogram on everybody all the time? Well, people, you know, first, when you do the fluorescent angiogram, you inject the dye there, right? Their skin turns orange for like a day. They pee orange for a day. Five to seven percent get, get um, nausea and vomiting. Occasionally people get hives. Probably one in a couple thousand will get a severe anaphylactic reaction. Okay. Right? It takes a nurse to do the injection. It takes a skilled photographer to do the study. It's a lot of do re mi. Okay, it's very expensive. Okay, and it's associated with side effects. But I couldn't think of a better setup than I'm going to be telling you than these two last last questions. Okay. So okay, so what do you what, when you look at this picture? Let's see how good you guys are now. This is a pretty hard question. But do you, if, if I were looking at this eye, is there anything in particular that would really catch my attention? These are what here? Okay. This is what? Exudate, right? That's the lipid coming out. It's all leakage stuff, right? There's no evidence of macrodemia here. We'd need an OCT to figure it out, right? So you still definitely get an OCT on this patient. You asked about OCT indications. And what's this? NV. So if you miss that little patch, you say, you're good to go. Come back and see me in six months. And the patient's going to call you and say, you know what? I lost my vision today. And you come in and they've got what? They got that. Okay? And then you feel bad. They feel really bad. Okay? So that's the name of the game. We don't want to miss these things. Okay? That's, that's the trick of this disease. Yes, sir. Did any of this technology slash knowledge base exist in the 1950s? No. No, none of it. If you had diabetes in the 1950s, you were just, yeah. You're in bad shape. Right. They used to pull out people pituitaries when they had proliferative disease. Because people who didn't have pituitaries, for some reason we don't totally understand, they didn't get proliferative disease. They what? They, they didn't get proliferative disease. So if they were like they were a dwarf and they had a pituitary hyperplasia or something like that, they, they didn't get they, they had diabetes for a long time. They didn't get proliferative disease. And they turned so then they started purposely removing. Or people had a, a stroke in their in their pituitary, the disease would would improve. They actually started purposely removing people's pituitary glands. That's how extreme it was. But better than being blind. Yes. Why does it cause this uh, cascade of 
It's because it causes it affects the little blood vessels, and the retina's got a lot of little blood vessels. It does the same thing in the kidneys, in your brain. You know. Sugar, yeah, there's probably a lot of other things, inflammatory things and all sorts of stuff going on. That's not, I don't know that much about it. Yeah. If you have pictures year after year after year of the same eye, is it easier to detect the changes? So that's a really good question. The question if you get pictures, sequential pictures, you know, every time they come in you get a, you get a picture, it's easier to pick up the changes. And actually, actually, a lot of people used to do that on a regular basis, take pictures of things. And still for certain things, if you're following some, you can't really tell, is that neovascularization or not? You might get a picture and see if it changes, or you know. And so we do use sequential pictures, but not as much as we used to. And I think it's because now we, our whole approach to the disease has changed so dramatically. We have this OCT, which is really accurate. Most of us are pretty good at grading retinopathy. We can we know what signs to look for to do it. Um, we don't use andro- we don't use angiograms as much as we used to, but we need to do it to make a determination like that. It's a really good way of, of measuring those those kinds of changes. That's a very good question. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, do type 1 and type 2 diabetics get the same changes, right? So type 1s are these younger diabetics, maybe 10% is type 1, they're insulin dependent. Type 2 or older people often with some obesity and insulin resistance. And um, basically changes are the same, okay? And it, it turns out that type 2 people have more diabetic macular edema. Um, the behavior of proliferative disease is a little different in type 1 and type 2, largely because the status of the vitreous. That's complicated to explain. But, um, and the other part of that question is if you control your diabetes, does the diabetes, does the retinopathy get better? And it often can, especially for long, long periods of time. If the horse is out of the barn and you have really bad eye disease, I don't think it makes much of a difference to control it. Then we're using things like laser and injections to control the disease. But I think, I think anyone, for a myriad of reasons beyond the eye, if you have bad control, which is terrible for you, it's much better to control the disease. Yeah. Yes? Do they, one would think if, if, the, um, if you're having um, neovascularization in your eye, you're probably having it elsewhere in your body also. So, do they ever treat diabetic people with anti-VEGF just systemically for their whole body? No, it's never been done. No, no. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do it because when you get a lot of that stuff in your body, it can promote strokes, actually. One of the side effects of these anti-VEGF things, especially systemic, what they'd use in you know, colorectal cancer to treat metastatic disease, is the development of stroke. So, we don't want to just inject that stuff all over the body. Yeah. Yes? Can you briefly mention something about floaters? Floaters, yeah. So the question is, you know, is it relationship to floaters? So anytime you get anything floating, anything you get anything in your gel of your eye, the vitreous. Remember, I said you bleed into the vitreous. Anytime you get anything going into that vitreous gel, you see this. You know, it's like uh, take a bright light and put something in front of it. It casts a shadow, right? So now it's going to cast a shadow where when it's floating in front of your gel on the retina, exactly. So when it casts a shadow on the floor, you see that as a floater. And as we age, the gel, which is nice and homogenous when we're kids, it begins to break down. Actually, in the first decade of life, when you're four or five years old, it begins to break down. And, and liquid parts form, and residual solid parts float in, those, in those, those, those liquid parts. And as they float, and there's light. And if you look at a good background, like a white, if you wake up in the morning, you got a white ceiling, you'll see the floaters. If you look at a blue sky, you'll, you'll see them. If you look at a microscope, you'll really see them like crazy. 
So everyone has these, and people who are nearsighted, um, you know, who have an injury to their eye, who have an inflammation in their eye, have, are more prone to these degenerative changes in the vitreous gel, so they have more floaters. Any bleeding in the eye will cause floaters. When we age, the, the gel separates from the retina, and as it does, a lot of floaters often will be seen. Um, so sudden onset of floaters is an indication, whether you're diabetic or not, to see a retinal specialist, let them go around and make sure there's no tearing of the retina, or in the case of diabetes, neovascularization. Oh, sorry. I said a lot. That's like when you're on the phone and you're talking to someone, you're talking to them for about two or three minutes, and then they're, they've, the phone connection is broken, and you're a little discouraged. And, and anyway, I, I, I think that um, you know, floaters, when anything in the gel that floats in front of your retina is a floater, okay? You'll see it as a shadow cast on the retina. So, you know, we see that in diabetes when there's bleeding in the eye. I've talked about that. You can see it in aging as the gel separates or detaches from, the, from its attachment to the retina. These things will float out in front. It's a normal aging change. It's accentuated in people who are nearsighted because the gel breaks down at an earlier age and probably more rapidly. Um, and people have had old inflammation in their eye and injury to their eye, all things which cause the gel to degenerate. And when it degenerates, solid parts float in these degenerative li- li- liquid pools that are in the, in the gel. You see that as a floater, accentuated by looking at a white ceiling or a blue sky. That's pretty much what I said. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It seemed like you said that if, if, you send, if you have floaters, you should see a retina specialist. But it seemed like everyone gets them. I mean, I. I'm just trying to drum up business. No, 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 no. It's, it's everyone has floaters. It's usually a sudden change in your floaters that, that would promote sudden change. But can I get on with the rest of this talk now? Because we're, we're losing the focus here. Okay. So this neovascularization here would be easy to see, right? It's right on the optic nerve. This neovascularization here is tough to see, right? Easily, easy to miss. So... I'm going to talk about, you asked this question before, which I said was sort of a set of questions about the merits of fluorescent angiography versus a color photograph. You guys both hit on those, those two issues. So here's a color photograph on the left, and you can't, I mean, the lighting's not great, right? But you might see this little hemorrhage down here, right? But you don't see too much, right? Probably there's a little more you can see, but here's a little, there's probably a little microaneurysm down there. You can see a little microaneurysm right there, okay? There's the hemorrhage. But look at all this, all, the more features you see when you do an angiogram. You see tons more features. Okay, it's a much more sensitive way, more sensitive way of looking at the the the, the retinopathy. But for all the reasons I said, which I actually have a slide dedicated to, we don't get angiograms on 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 on, on patients. We don't just get them routinely. We're very sparing in our use of angiography. Now here's FA. I said first angiogram. What are these things? Right, and they leak a lot more because they're leaking not into the retina, which is this compact tissue, but into the vitreous cavity is not so compact. So here's why it's not a popular test among patients. You've got to dilate the pupil, it turns your skin yellow, discomfort from bright lights, multiple sticks. Sometimes you can't get it. I'm sure you've been to the, when they try to get venous access. The older you get, the harder it gets. Stick, stick, stick. You're like a pin cushion. And they don't, no one wants to go through that, okay? Um, occasional allergic reaction to the diet. It's a 30-minute test. For all the above reasons, this is not used as a screening test for diabetic retinopathy. Use it very purposefully, Okay? What if we could have a screen test that gave us the same information angiography gave? That would be pretty cool, right? 
be really cool. So let's go back to OCT because we like OCT, right? Shows us all its details. So here's, again, normal retina. This has what here? Macrodema. Okay? This is mini medical school. You've got to use the terminology. Okay? Okay. So, so there's the macrodema. But where are the blood vessels here? This does not show us blood vessels well. Okay? We wish it did, right? So I partnered with this guy named Scott Fraser at Caltech now is EOC, and we started working on this project to use OCT to show us the retinal vasculature. Okay, so we can see the capillaries and everything from OCT. And it turns out when you get an OCT scan, you're getting tons and tons of information, a lot of which is left on the table. It's not used. But if you use that information and you now look not just at the light coming back and we know how bright it is and how strong the ampl- how high it is in amplitude, but you look at the light in terms of its ability to show you what are called scatterers, areas that are moving versus areas that are static, the moving areas correspond to blood vessels. Okay, the static areas correspond to the rest of the retina. And it turns out it's a really good way of showing the retina vasculature, even better than fluorescent angiography. And I told you OCT scans are obtained how? How invasive are they? No. Zero. How much you have to dilate the pupil? Zero. Right? It's a cheap test. Turns out also you don't need a nurse or skilled technician to do this test. You can teach a technician to do this test very rapidly. Okay? Very easy to do. It could be done at Walmart very easily. Or cost, Costco. Now, why? Why it sounds? I sound facetious. I'm saying that, but why would it be a good idea to do that? I told you why. Exactly. But everybody goes to Costco. Okay. So, 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 so it's 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 it provides an opportunity. Everyone goes to Walgreens to get their to get their their diabetes medicines, and people even attend their medical doctor much more. Even though they have diabetes, they go to their medical doctor much more regularly, with much greater compliance than they see their eye doctor. Okay, so let's talk about almost all ophthalmologists have OCT scanners now because it's become so indispensable in our, our practice, okay? Now the question is to get the angiogram talking about what do you need on top of the OCT scan? What kind of hardware extra do you need? Zero. It's software. It's software processing of data that's left on the table. So now the question in your mind is to be, well, really, how good is this thing? What does it show? Okay? So let me show you some pictures, hopefully. Okay? This is OCT angiography. Maybe we can hit the light slides down here. So this is looking at the, what we call the, the fovea. The fovea has no blood vessels. And you can see here, now we not only see capillaries, but we all see the depth of capillaries. Okay? Okay? Look at this. That's OCT. That's not, there's, nothing di- there's nothing injected here. There's no orange skin. No orange urine. Is that AV nicking? Uh, it is probably, yeah. Probably is AV nicking. Excellent. Good, good call. Where this thing nicks as it passes over, exactly. Very good. Okay. Here's a wide field view. Okay. So that's the screening photograph you can take to establish whether there's neovascularization and whether there's, you know, how to engrade the retinopathy and determine how often the patient needs to come back. See that? Now look at this. Here's a fluorescent angiogram. Okay. What are these? Mm. Microaneurysms, exactly, microaneurysms, right? Okay, now you can also see these things here. Look at these areas here. I'm going to outline them. What are those? 
Dead red, but we don't say that, right? We say those are areas of capillary closure, right? Or we guys call them initially closing the blood vessels. These are capillary closure, areas of perfusion or non-perfusion? Non-perfusion, okay? So now we're going to look at the same patient, but by OCT angiography, okay, OCTA. So this is software processing of the OCT on this patient. Here it is. Shows you the same microaneurysms and the same areas of capillary non-perfusion. Okay? So it's just as good. It actually shows you more, and it's non-invasive. The depth, the depth, yeah. The depth. Because this is able actually to go, you're, getting, you're seeing all the blood vessels at once on an angiogram, but on this thing you can actually go through different layers like this. It's called segmentation. So you can look at capillaries that are superficial, capillaries that are deeper. Here's, there's no, I can show you, I should have brought, a, I have videos. I can just, you just go through the whole red, not through the whole cord. You just watch the blood vessels come and go. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's a really wild tech, tech technology. So this is an area of neovascularization. The nerves under there, this is an area of neovascularization, which you can see by OCTA, by angiography. So this is sort of the model that we've come up with here. We said 45 patients with diabetes never make it to their annual appointment with the ophthalmologist, but they do see a primary care physician and go to the pharmacy. So here they could get their OCT at the, at the primary care physician or the pharmacy, sent to a reading center, you know, uploaded to the cloud, and then back come the information to their primary care doctor, to the, to the patient themselves, um, to their optometrist, whoever they see. So this is a new model for trying to solve this public health health problem. So OCT angiography is a software tool that renders angiographic images from OCT scanning data. There's multiple potential imaging sites, which can be done in ophthalmologists, optometry, primary care, pharmacies. The goal is to make it easier for patients with diabetes to get a retinal evaluation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the last thing I'd like to go over is this whole idea of misconceptions about diabetes. And that's the first thing I told you today, right? So let me show you just a few slides of that, and then we're going to be done. So I said that people have always thought of diabetes as a blind disease, and if you open up our American Academy manual on diabetes, they have these Klein statistics from the Kleins. They're this couple that live in Wisconsin, and all they do are these epidemiologic studies. And they just look at huge populations of patients, and they say how many people smoke, how many people drink, how many people have diabetic retinopathy, how many people have high cholesterol. They're epidemiologists. It sounds to me like a dreadful life. But they enjoy it, and they publish a lot of papers on it, okay? And one of the things that they, have, that they have published is, you know, this idea that if you have diabetes for a long time, you're going you're gonna, to, it's a lock, you're going to get the retinopathy. And I said that is not true anymore, okay? There's a lot of misconceptions about it. So I say, throw out the old ideas about inescapable blindness from diabetes. This, these are based on outdated natural history studies, and they were prior to the recognition that the control of blood glucose was critical. I bet you everyone in this room knows, or who, if they care about it, that blood sugar control is really critical for diabetes. And you probably think that was never controversial. Okay? It turns out it was massively controversial. When I was a medical student in the 80s here at UCSF, it was massively controversial. There was, there was some diabetologists here who thought it was really important, and there was this guy who's a really famous guy out, out at the VA, and you know that we have three hospitals here. We have Parnassus. Well, now we have more and more sites than that, but we had then Parnassus, the county, San Francisco General, and the VA, and we all work at these different facilities. And this really famous guy who, who was out at the, at the VA, and he, and he published a New England Journal about this, and he had a lot of people. as a very famous guy at Harvard that had the same opinion that he did, was the blood sugar didn't have anything to do with the disease. And if you controlled the blood sugar tightly, all you did was you got no benefits from it, and you just, just took risks of hypoglycemic attacks that can cause stroke and other, other severe problems, even death. Okay? So they did really pivotal studies 
in the 80s uh, in which they studied cohorts of diabetic patients and they basically they randomized them to tight control versus what was then called conventional control. The tight control is checking the blood sugar many multiple times, multiple insulin injections a day versus a couple injections of insulin a day. Or in the case of, of adult diabetics, it was you know, very tight control, again, checking multiple times, and seeing whether the tight control, getting a hemoglobin A1C, which is a measure of the, of the control, having a better hemoglobin A1C was associated with lower risks of kidney disease, eye disease, peripheral nerve disease, and even macrovascular disease, which would be heart attacks, strokes, et cetera. Okay? This was not known as recently as when I was in medical school. And I'm a very young man. So, so, so this is... So, so what we learned from those studies is if you can get metabolic control of your disease, control your blood sugar, you get a tremendous benefit. Okay? So here it is. In the early 80s, the Wisconsin, um, this is what I'm saying, the, virtually all type 1 diabetics had some retinopathy after 20 years. That's what, this, that's what these guys said the clients did. But the mean hemoglobin A1C in this often quoted study is 10. 10 is like, you know, way out of control diabetes. Okay? I guarantee that if any of you here in this room are diabetic, you are not walking in here with a hemoglobin A1C of 10. It's probably 7 or 6 or 8 or whatever. In this 1978 textbook, Epidemiology of Diabetes, this, the author wrote, the extent to which the level of hyperglycemia determines the risk of retinopathy is not at all clear. Didn't know. This is the most important issue at hand and deserves high priority in epidemiologic research. So didn't know. Okay. So this was the important, this was the type 1 study. And the type 2 study, pretty much the same results. They took, you know, more than 1,000 patients. They followed them for six and a half years. The tight controls had 7.3 hemoglobin A1C versus the conventional controls with 9. So it's a pretty significant difference here. This translated to a 74% reduction in the development of retinopathy, comparing the two groups, and a 54% chance in, 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 the, in the reduction. Dramatic. Okay? Very, very dramatic. Showed the same thing with the type 2s. And this is what I think the most impressive. This is another study called the EDIC, and this was 10 additional years, beyond the 6.5, 10 additional years of follow-up for the people that were in the tight. And you can see if you look at the, the, A, the A1C on those patients, it slipped. It was no longer 7.3. It crept up to 8. But what happened to their vision loss? Of 596 people in this study, 1,192 eyes, because all these patients had, 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 had two eyes, four <laughs> eyes were 2,200 or less. Okay? Of these four, in only one eye was the visual loss due to diabetes. That's 16 years follow-up, okay? The percent of legally blind patients where you're 2,200 in both eyes, zero, okay? So then my next slide is this. The Klein's recant, okay? Data from epidemiologic studies have shown remarkable improvements in the care and management of diabetes associated with significant decreases in the prevalence and incidence of diabetic retinopathy. So this whole idea that it's like a death sentence for your eyes out the window now, especially with tight control. And we're lucky in San Francisco that there's really good, you know, primary care, endocrinology, et cetera, so that we hope you don't even need to go to the ophthalmologist, right? You need to see us to be checked. But hope I have a bunch of patients in my practice who now have had diabetes for 25, 30 years, and I don't see any retinopathy in their eye at all. Zero. Okay? So, you know, this is the examination schedule. I just thought I'd throw that in. You know, with type 1s, there's no disease in your eye for the first five years until you, until you pass puberty. And so we generally like to see them five years after diagnosis. Type 2... Because it's an asymptomatic disease, you can have type 2 disease and not be aware of it. So, um, so we'd like to see those patients at the time of diagnosis. They should see their eye doctor because we'll find retinopathy as, as high as 20, 25% of those patients when they're first, first diagnosed. And uh, what do we do? We examine you. We have two, I told, told you what the purposes are. 
The purposes are to classify the retinopathy, which determines when we want to see you next. It doesn't have to be a year. It might be six months. It might be two months, depending on the severity. And then we see what is anything that's treatable. What would be the treatable lesions? No, that's, what are the two things we're interested in treating? Proliferative retinopathy. And what's the other one? The most common cause of visual loss in diabetes? Macular edema. The hour grows late. You're getting tired. Okay. This was a recent article in a leading ophthalmology journal on diabetic eye disease. Okay? This is what I'm getting back to. In addition to treating retinopathy, ophthalmologists can play an important role in educating and motivating patients to achieve better metabolic control, which is successful, potentially could do more to reduce the progression of retinopathy than any of the ocular treatments currently in the armamentarium of the ophthalmologist, i.e., it's metabolic control, blood pressure control that have the most dramatic effect. We're there to like save the day with injections and laser, but we hope you never come to that if you have diabetes. So in summary, throw out the old preconceptions of diabetic visual loss. It's outdated. These are based on outdated natural history studies, and prior to these were based on the you know, ideas that prior to this, they came out prior to the recognition that control of blood glucose was critical. Um, I talked about the power of metabolic control and controlling the disease. We've got laser and drug treatments for the minority of patients that require therapy. Certainly in San Francisco, it's really the minority. OCT angiography may replace fluorescent angiography, and follow-up is critical since often diabetic eye disease is asymptomatic. You can have 20-20 vision, perfect vision, with terrible diabetic eye disease. So the patient's not a good gauge. Their own symptoms are not a good gauge of, of how severe it is. That's all i got to say. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.